take God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. For those of you who are listening online and those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we're in a series of messages from Matthew 8 and 9 on bringing the kingdom to the broken. Bringing the kingdom to the broken. Now in Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, presents ten miracles of Jesus in rapid succession. And his purpose in writing his gospel and his purpose for including these ten miracles in this order is that he wants to show the Jewish people that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the King God has promised to send to Israel. And Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes, he comes preaching the kingdom, the scripture tells us. And that good news of the kingdom is the gospel message that Jesus brings to us. And when he comes, he makes this promise that he is coming to bring the kingdom to those who have been left out, to the outsiders, as well as those who have the promises in Israel. But he also says, and he shows, and this is what Matthew shows to us in chapters 8 and 9, that Jesus not only has the authority to make such a promise, but he has the power to bring it about. Now, when sin entered this world, it brought a multitude of consequences. Sickness, sadness, sorrow, suffering, Death, all of these are consequences of sin. Now we know that Jesus Christ was sent from heaven to us so that he might take away our sins. But here's what I want us to think about this Sunday and next Sunday. Did Jesus also come to take away the consequences of sin? Yes, he did. What I want us to do is I want us to seek to understand biblically what the healing ministry of Jesus means for us. And I want you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word, beginning at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up, and she began to serve him. When evening came... They brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. May God bless the reading of his word. Human weakness and disease are consequences of the fall of man, consequences of sin. 
And we're all affected by these terrible things. And yet verse 17 says something significant to us. In that 17th verse, it says that Jesus took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. Now what exactly does that mean? How does it work in our lives today? The context for verse 17 begins in the 14th verse. And today what we're going to see is that Jesus' healing is personal in its focus. And it is also practical in its application. And then next week what I want us to do is I want in the next message to look how Jesus' healing is pervasive in its reach. So first of all, I want you to look at verses 14 and 15 with me and notice that Jesus' healing is personal in its focus. Now this is one of the most well-documented events in Jesus' ministry. This is one of those uh, miracles which Jesus performed which was recorded by three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include this event in their gospel accounts. So it was very significant in their understanding of the ministry of Jesus. And on this particular occasion, the scripture tells us that Matthew's, uh, mother's, uh, Matthew's wife's mother was ill with a fever. Now, we don't know what the kind of fever was that she has. It's not specified. There were three very prevalent kinds of diseases that were accompanied by high fever in Palestine that day, one of them being malaria. And we don't know which one it is because this text doesn't tell us. But we do have information from these three gospel writers and Luke, the gospel writer, who, by the way, was a doctor, and not only a doctor but a meticulous researcher, Luke tells us in his gospel that it was a high fever, and he also says that she was suffering greatly from it. So whatever the name of it was, it was very serious. In fact, many of you have had children who got a high fever. The fever spikes, it gets terribly high. For an adult, it'd be enough to kill you if it was lasting any length of time at all. And so we have to be very careful with children. We know that a high temperature prolonged over time, if not treated, is deadly. So this particular healing story is highlighted for us right before Matthew tells us about Jesus' healing multitudes of people. And to be honest with you, it almost seems out of place. I mean, what is the healing of one elderly lady with a fever to so many who had so many great needs. Why would this be included? I'm glad you asked. Because that's exactly the point. The point is Jesus sees the one in a crowd. I let that settle on you this morning. If there were no one else here but you, it'd be important enough for Jesus to meet here with you. And even in a room full of people where it's easy for us to blend in and kind of be lost in the crowd, Jesus still sees you. 
He still values you. For the Bible tells us that when we were created, we were all created as far as the imagio Dei. We are all created in the image of God. We are all equal in value. We are all equal in importance. Now this miracle tells us much about Jesus. And it also tells us much about the woman. First of all, when we think of Jesus in the story... We see that Jesus cares for the outsider and the individual. In chapter 8, Matthew has grouped together for us here in these first 17 verses three miracles of Jesus. One of those is the healing of a leper. Leper's an outsider. Then we proceeded to see that Jesus interacts with a Roman centurion and heals the centurion's servant on the basis of the centurion's faith in Jesus, believing that he could heal. And here we see the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Now these three are grouped together for a purpose. Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is a Savior for all. He's a savior for the insiders, and he's a savior for the outsiders. In biblical times, Jewish women were excluded by law from participating in synagogue worship, and they were restricted to a spectator role. There was a court of the women outside the main worship area, and women were to remain in that area if they were to come to the sanctuary to worship. A woman was not even to touch the scriptures, for if she touched them, she would taint them. Furthermore, husbands were not even to speak to their wives much. And the restrictions on men interacting with women in public was even more stringent. Now, according to Mark chapter 1, Jesus had come from the synagogue where he had healed a demon-possessed man. Matthew tells us that Jesus also healed a leper and the centurion's servant on his way home. I don't know if you understand this or not, but every time Jesus healed someone, it cost him something. Scripture tells us that every time Jesus healed someone, power went out from him. Now you count the number of healings that have taken place in this short period of time, and you would understand that Jesus, who is God in human flesh, is also fully a human being. Fully God, fully man. As God is eternal, as man He feels the same weaknesses that we feel, the same frailty that we feel as being human beings. Now what I want you to understand is that naturally Jesus would have been tired at this point. Peter's house served as headquarters for Jesus' ministry in northern Galilee. And this was where most of the things that we read about happening uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus occurred. On this northern end 
of Galilee. It wasn't till the latter part that we see a lot of the activity in the city of Jerusalem. That doesn't come till almost the end. He's in and out as he goes for religious fests, but he's just dipping in and out of Jerusalem many times. So Peter's house serves as headquarters for Jesus' ministry. You know why Jesus is going to Peter's house at this point, this time of the day? <laughs> He's going there for rest. It's been a busy day. He has preached for hours in the synagogue teaching. You thought some of my sermons were long. He's on his way to Peter's house for rest. And yet when he walks through the door, he is yet greeted with another need. Somebody else needs him. And so Jesus puts forth all his power and gives all of his attention to this woman with a fever. Now, Jesus was tired, but he wasn't too tired to help. He didn't regard the demands of human need as a nuisance. No situation was too humble for him to help. And I thought about this a lot this past week. He's not one of those people who's at his best in public but not so much in private. You know, James Dobson made the observation that home is the place where we're treated the best and act the worst. But not so with Jesus. He was the same in public and the same in private. And here... Whether in a crowd or in a cottage, his love and his power were at the disposal of anyone who needed him. Family didn't get the leftovers, they got his best. Jesus' healing is personal in its focus. He cares for the outsider and the individual. And we also learn much about the woman whom he healed. From her, we learn that Jesus cures us so that we may serve others. In the 15th verse, it says that as soon as Peter's mother-in-law was made well, she got up and she began to serve him. Now, obviously, there were others in the house, so she not only just got up to serve Jesus, she got up to serve all those who were guests in their home at that time. Here is a lady who regarded herself as saved to serve. Jesus has healed her, and her one desire after her newfound health was to serve. Now I want you to notice the order of what happens here. She didn't serve Jesus, and then he healed her. He healed her, 
and then she served him. You know, it's the same way in our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's an important lesson. We're saved. That's a gift. There's nothing we do to earn that. But then I want you to notice the truth that is attached to it. Because immediately following that verse, it says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God has determined beforehand that we should do them. Now what an amazing statement that is. You see how these two things are connected to one another? We're saved by faith alone. Not by works. But we're saved in order that we may do good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are saved to serve. Saved by grace, through faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Jesus saves us so that we may serve others. Oscar Wilde, you recognize the name, the satirist, penned what he himself called, <laughs> I'm sure with all humility, the best short story in the world. And here's what he wrote. Christ came from a white plain to a purple city. And as he passed through the first street, he heard voices overhead, and he saw a young man lying drunk upon a window sill. Why do you waste your soul in drunkenness? he asked. And the man replied, Lord, I was a leper, and you healed me. What else can I do? A little further through the town, he saw a young man following a harlot, and he said, Why do you dissolve your soul in debauchery? And the young man answered, Lord, I was blind and you healed me. What else can I do? At last, in the middle of the city, he saw an old man crouching, weeping on the ground. And when he asked why he wept, the old man answered, Lord, I was dead and you raised me into life. What else can I do but weep? That awful parable describes how some believers use the gifts of Christ and the mercy of God. We waste it on ourselves. Peter's mother-in-law used the gift of her restored health to serve Jesus and others, and that's the way in which we should use every gift of Christ. We're saved to serve. Jesus' healing is personal in its focus, but in the very next verse, verse 16, we go from Jesus healing one person to Jesus healing many. And let's look at it again, verse 16. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. No case is too hard for Jesus. 
Notice the unlimited nature of Jesus' authority here. Jesus didn't just heal some who were sick. Scripture tells us he healed all who were sick. There are no limits to Jesus' healing powers. He can heal one. He can heal many. He can heal the outsider. He can heal the insider. He can heal all types of diseases. It doesn't matter what you throw at Jesus. Jesus can handle it all. And notice how he did it. The verse says, He drove out the spirits with a word. Phrases like that can be lost in the shuffle. We can read over them and see nothing in particular for them. But in Matthew's writing his gospel, that's a phrase that's carefully selected. Because remember what Matthew is seeking to do in his gospel? He's presenting Jesus as the King, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as God who has come to earth to save us from our sins. And so what Matthew hopes to do with this phrase, with a word, he's hoping that his readers who are Jewish will make the connection between Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 which says, Let there be light. God, with a word, spoke the world into existence. He spoke, and it happened. He comes to this woman, and he comes to these multitudes. And he speaks a word, and the demon possessed are healed. He drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. I want you to notice also with me that any time is the right time to show love to others. It says in verse 16. When evening came, they brought many to him. Now Mark, who's one of the gospel writers who also reports his story, presents the story in Mark chapter 1. And in verses 21 and 32 of Mark chapter 1, it says that on the Sabbath after the sunset, that's the time when this took place, on the Sabbath, after the sunset. Now many were being brought to Jesus. I mean, some, such as the blind, I assume, were probably assisted by holding on to someone's arm, guided along the pathway to the house. But they were walking on their own two feet. There were others, perhaps paralytics. They're not ambulatory. They can't get there on their own. 
And so we can only imagine that they're carried there by stretcher, or they're carried on somebody's back, or in someone's arms, perhaps on someone's shoulders. And some of these cases might have been considered life-threatening, but the sense that we get is that most of them were not. The kinds of diseases most of those who were coming to Jesus from which they suffered were chronic, not life-threatening. Now lean in and hear this. To us, those kinds of details are relatively insignificant. But to law-abiding Jews... They were very important. According to the law, work was forbidden on the Sabbath day. It was illegal to carry a burden on the Sabbath, and a burden was defined as anything that weighed more than two dried figs. Therefore, it was illegal to carry a sick person from place to place on a stretcher or in one's arms or on one's back or shoulders. To do so would have been to carry a burden. Now, officially, the Sabbath ended at sunset, and it started on the Friday evening before, as soon as two stars could be seen in the sky. And that explains, you see, why the crowd in Capernaum waited until evening to come to Jesus for the healing they know he could give. In her book, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, Lois Turberg observes that Christians and Jews view the commandments differently. I hadn't thought about this, but she's right. As Christians, we tend to see all of the commandments as being equal in value, and rightfully so. We don't choose to obey one commandment over another. They're all important. You break one, you break them all. (laughs) That's what we know to be true. That's what we feel as Christians. But the Jews learn to weight the commandments. Why would they weigh the commandments? Because sometimes commandments in real-life situations can conflict with one another. They had to have a way of knowing, how can you obey the commandments without preferring one over the other? And so they practiced what was kal hamur, which is a Hebrew word meaning light and heavy. The commandments were weighted among the Jews. Some were weighted as being lighter than others. Others were of more importance. The ones that were of preeminent importance were determined according to a Jewish practice, a principle as they reviewed the laws, and the principle was pekuach nefesh, which means preservation of life. 
because God was so clear in the Torah about the preciousness and the priority of human life and preserving life, the highest commandment of all was to save a life. Now, with that in mind, we see that in some instances, in very practical situations, we can see where this would come into play. You have a baby. In Judaism, as a sign of keeping the covenant with God, a male child is to be circumcised on the eighth day. What if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath? They had to have a way of being able to determine. So it was determined, you see, that keeping the covenant with God was the most important thing in that instance. And so your child was to go ahead and be circumcised on the eighth day. And so we look at this story and we see all of these Jewish factors at play coming together in these events. And in this instance, what we see is we see Jesus honoring the Sabbath law by waiting till after the Sabbath before healing those who came to him. But over in Luke chapter 13, we have another instance of healing on the Sabbath. A woman who had been crippled for 18 years was in the congregation listening to Jesus teach. Her condition was chronic, not life-threatening. And the synagogue leader pointed out, this woman can be healed on any other day of the week. But Jesus healed her anyway. As important as it was to honor the Sabbath, human life was more important. And so we have the statement in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, where Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, Jesus' healing is practical in its application. When Jesus stands up and speaks the Sermon on the Mount, He doesn't come to do away with the commandments. He comes to do what? To fill them full. How does He fill them full? He said, you've been living by a list of legalistic rules. You, you've, lost, you've lost the intent. God's intent always was to love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, mind, soul, strength. And do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you what the law was always intended to be like. That was always intended to be lived. Jesus always put priority on loving the Lord and loving others. 
And as long as there was a soul in need, Jesus selflessly and with divine generosity met them all. I was thinking about the Sabbath, how we have probably the exact opposite problem in our day. There was a time, and some of the people even in this room will testify, there was a time when our day of worship was referred to as the Sabbath. Certainly in our lifetime for many of us here, and I'm throwing myself in this lot, we came to speak of the Sabbath in time as what? The Lord's Day, right? You know what they call it today? The weekend. I think we've lost something. You know, there was a time when stores were closed on Sunday. I I know I'm making myself seem really old here to a lot of folks in the room this morning, but no kidding, the stores were closed. I mean, you know, when my son first heard this, he said, Dad, how did we have food for lunches during the week? I said, I don't know, son, somehow your mother figured out. This is how much we need to buy for the rest of the week. We didn't run to the store every day. I've been to a Titans game on Sunday, I cannot lie. You can see you hear a lot at a football game. And I think to myself, I know that we're not bound to live by the commandments, but remember, Jesus didn't negate the commandments. He didn't say, well, don't worry about those anymore. Jesus came to fulfill the commandments. He came to keep them from the heart. And I, and I think to myself, have we not slid in some way into this thought of Sunday as just being part of the weekend? I mean, we're here, but then we're on to something else, right? This, this is not the pinnacle. This is the start of the day. we got other stuff we're going to do today. Now, I say all of that because I want to make a point, but I wanted to make it in that context. And I want to make it in the context of how Jesus applied this commandment in accordance with loving the Lord your God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And loving your neighbor as yourself. So here's the scenario. It's hypothetical. You don't typically do yard work on Sunday. But your elderly mother needs her lawn mowed. And you can't do it any other time.
time of the week. But you have Sunday afternoon open. Go mow your mother's lawn. I think that's what Jesus would tell you to do. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We honor God by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus taught that we should be obedient, that we should aim to be obedient in all ways. But we should always aim to be loving toward others. And that sets the priorities for how we are to obey. I hope there's something in that for you to take away. But if you can't hang on to anything else this morning other than this, I want you to know this morning that God brought you here because he wants you to know this. You are of great value to him. There's nothing more important to him than you. He loves you. You need to hear that this morning. Because you may be hearing a lot of voices or you may be seeing a lot of things on the internet or whatever and, and it doesn't make you feel so great about yourself. You're constantly looking for approval from others and sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. And Jesus wants you to know that he loves you, that you're important to him. In fact, it is true, and we say it not casually, but we say it because it is true. That if you were the only person to have ever sinned against God, he still would have sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. Now, how does that make you feel? It ought to make you feel really special. It ought to also make you evaluate a lot of things about your life, not the least of which are the things that I'm giving myself to, are, are they worth it? I mean, what benefit do I receive from those things? Something that lasts for a little while, something that's temporal? Let me tell you, anything that is done for God will last for eternity. You'll never regret giving your life to Jesus and serving him with all your heart and loving others as Jesus loves you.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for a love so marvelous, so wonderful that we can't, I mean, you can't make it up. I mean, your wildest imagination, you'd never imagine there would be a God who would love us so much that that we're responsible for losing our own way and for the sin that grips our own hearts and we make so many bad choices and we willingly leave you out of our lives. God, it's just overwhelming when we think there's a God who loves us so much that he sent his son from the comforts of heaven where everything is just perfect and he's worshipped all the time to a world where people would spit on him and people would curse him and people would shout at him cruel things. In fact, it says that he was raised in in a town and he came to show God's love to them and it said they didn't even believe him. Lord, this morning we believe that you love us, that you died on the cross for us, and that the way to forgiveness of sin, the relationship with you, is to open up our hearts to Jesus. If you're here today and that's your decision, I want you during this time, before you leave today, come down here to the front, speak to one of our pastors, and let them know that you're taking Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. You want to follow him. Give your heart to Christ. It may be today, as Andy mentioned at the start, that uh, your right next step in following Jesus and being a faithful servant of His is to find a church home. Now, a church is not a building. We do meet here. But a church is people. And you need to be identified with a group of people so you can share those gifts that God has given to you in the service of God to others. And so this morning, perhaps God would be leading you to join us in the chapel to learn more about what it means to be a member of Christ's body who meets here at First Baptist. Whatever decision you need to make today, I pray that you will not waste this moment. This altar is open. Nothing would honor the Lord more than to see people coming to pray here at this altar. Not because there's any dark secret that you've hidden in your life. Well, there may be one, but just because it's been a long time since you've come to the altar and knelt down to pray, that'd be good enough in God's eyes. Might be something that would add to your worship experience this morning that would be out of the norm. Whatever God is leading you to do today, let's stand together to our feet and let's respond and sing as to Jesus. Jesus.